Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. This panel discussion took place at the New York Academy of Sciences in September 2016 and was produced by Intelligence Squared in partnership with the World Health Organization and the Wellcome Trust. We hope you enjoy listening. I bring, I bring greetings from Science Friday, where we uh, hope there are a few listeners in the audience here. Um, and this is a topic that we have covered quite often because it is becoming uh, increasingly evident that we are in trouble with antibiotics. Uh, and can you just to, to briefly sum it up, um, antibiotics, we, we used to call them wonder drugs following World War II, and the, the only wonder drugs, antibiotics, broad-spectrum antibiotics, were saving people's lives left and right and, and doing a wonderful job at it, but they have become a victim of their own success uh, because uh, the more times you use antibiotics, they, they, they evolve. And they become resistant. The bacteria that they kill evolve, and they become resistant to these antibiotics. So we're now uh, running out of drugs that are able to fight these bacterial infections. And so there's a there's a new phrase that's entering our vocabulary called antimicrobial resistance. AMR uh, is a way that we might be hearing it uh, referred to up here on the stage. Um, there's a misunderstanding in the public in lots of places in the world uh, that, gee, it's good to get antibiotics from my doctor. The more I get, the better I will be. And, you know, if I don't go home from my doctor uh, with, a, with a prescription for some broad-spectrum antibiotic, I, you know, my doctor hasn't done his or her job. So we expect that kind of thing, and it's led to, you know, one way of overprescribing antibiotics. Um, and it, the problem is, is is not confined to human uh, health care because antibiotics, as you probably know, are used all over the world in livestock. They're used in chickens and, and, and cows and other animals uh, uh, to, uh, to treat the animals, even if they don't have diseases, to make them grow faster, to come to market sooner, uh, prophylactically to, to prevent them having diseases. Uh, and 70%, which we will talk about, 70% of the antibiotics in the United States are, are used on animals and not used on people. So so the meat we eat is, is really contributing uh, to the problem. And we'll also talk about it, that if you're a vegan, you're not free of antibiotic antibiotics in, in your food. And in fact, there, there's so much, there are so many cases of uh, the use of antibiotics that 
can you drink water that does not have antibiotics in it? It's hard to find even water that doesn't have it in it. Um, and well, you know, ant antibiotic supporters would would argue that they help spread, uh, prevent the spread of illnesses, which well, you know, which could significantly lower the yields of, of of the meat supply, and they make the meat supply very safe. Uh, they they could increase, you know, the the yields of the animals. But we're coming to a point where even the meat producers realize that they and we are in trouble. Uh, we'll talk about how we need to take urgent action uh, because we're entering a world where the antibiotics are no longer working. And the people are dying. They might die of minor infections. You know, you used to be able to get 100 years ago, if you got a cut and it got infected, there was nothing that anybody could do for you. Are we re-entering that age of antibiotic resistance? What's interesting about the timing of our panel is that next week the uh, UN General Assembly is convening a high-level meeting on antimicrobial resistance up, up the block here at, at the UN. So, and you know, it's a very rare event when the UN takes up a health issue like this in its annual meeting. Uh, I'll just name a couple of times. One was with AIDS, one was with Ebola. So you can see that they seem now to find this a very, <clears throat> excuse me, <coughs> an issue worldwide. So instead of me going on with this, let's, let's uh, introduce our guests. And I'm going to have our guests introduce each other. And they're going to start out with about five-minute presentation. And we'll have a discussion. And we'll take our questions. Tim, why don't you introduce yourself first, who you are, and Thanks, Ari. why yeah. you're here. My name's uh, Tim Spector. I'm professor of uh, genetic epidemiology at King's College London, and uh, I've been working on the British Gut Project, uh, <coughs> sister project, the American Gut Project, and I'm interested in gut microbes, and I'm also author of The Diet Myth, The Real Science Behind What We Eat, a book about diet and microbes. And... Um, I'm interested in this because, I'm, as a clinician, obviously I've been aware of the antibiotic problem, and we've heard about some of these, but the massive overprescribing that goes on in general practice uh, around the world, nine out of ten uh, prescriptions are generally unnecessary, and huge differences between doctors and between countries. And uh, this is mirrored when you look at the, the world maps, um, some countries can keep their usage really low, and, and Britain is pretty bad. But uh, we have about double the usage of a country like Netherlands, uh, but actually we're better than the U.S. So uh, just uh, general practice it has a huge difference there. And the fact that overprescribing for viruses and things that don't need be needed comes from the demands of the patients and also the public who say, I want... Uh, to have something, and the, and the practitioner wants to give a placebo. He wants them to be happy. He doesn't want to upset them. They want them to go somewhere else. So we have to change that mentality somehow, that these are harmless uh, sweets you just take that have no downside. Of the eight commonest side effects of all drugs in the U.S., the top five are antibiotics. We already know that, but there's some extra ones as well. And um, the... The key here is that um, the extra side effect could be obesity. We don't, it doesn't feature on these lists, but if you look at the list of antibiotic prescribing across the U.S., you draw a map, there are five-fold differences between states. And there are also massive differences in the obesity levels in the U.S., and they exactly mirror each other. That's an observational study. It's not proof, but you can, you can clearly track 
how obesity has rocketed in the U.S. with the changes in antibiotic use. And why, you might ask, are we getting these, these, these changes, um, say, by state? Um, how can it cause obesity? Well, we've heard that um, for the last 30 years, the agricultural industry has known that if you feed small amounts of antibiotics to animals, they get fatter faster. So um, that's why it gets abused in that industry, and that's why uh, all uh, processed meats and foods, particularly poultry and pig, all get exposed to massive amounts of antibiotics in countries that don't care about it. But, there's a f but some countries do. All the Scandinavian countries have tiny amounts of antibiotic-fed uh, meat, and southern Europe have very high levels, and the U.S. is pretty close to the top of that list because they want cheap food at any price, and that's the price you pay. But why could there be this link with obesity? Because I think this is the biggest health care burden facing the Western world at the moment, obesity and diabetes, and it comes down to our gut microbes, these 100 trillion microbes inside all of us. We're all very unique, and we already have a 30% less microbes than we did as hunter-gatherers because virtually all of us have been given antibiotics, and that's slowly wiping out our natural microbes. And the more diverse microbes we have, the healthier we are. That's now been proven. And so we're reducing our diversity. The less diverse our microbes, the more sick we are, the more likely we are to get obesity and diabetes. Studies by a guy called Marty Blazer, who works in New York, have been pioneering in this field. He's been giving mice um, the levels of antibiotics that you would give to uh, other animals and to humans at low doses, subliminal doses, they all get fatter, they all get diabetes. And the other side effect of antibiotics that isn't talked about is allergy. There's a, uh, seven studies now showing regular antibiotic use interferes with your gut microbes, reduces diversity, and produces allergy. And what's the other big epidemic we're all facing? Food allergy. First food allergy case uh, that was presented in the modern literature was when? It wasn't 100 years ago. It was 1969 when man walked on the moon. I never heard of food allergy until when I was at school, and now they have special schools for nut uh, avoidance. And I think one of the main reasons is, <coughs> our, is our gut microbes that are being destroyed. So we're facing a, a huge problem here that is by the understanding our gut microbes, I think we can get the public to change the perception. If we can educate people how important it is to avoid this, each time you take an antibiotic, it's like a nuclear explosion for your gut microbes. But we're facing uh, a bill just in the U U.S. of around 50 billion extra a year because of the problems of resistance to antibiotics. Mm. And so we need the public themselves to say to their doctor, no, I don't want a placebo that's going to make me fat or my children fat or give them allergies. I want something else. And I think once we do that, we can really move on. And that's right. my uh, big suggestion, that we, we, we take these, educate the public in that way. All right, we'll talk about that. Very interesting. Uh, next is uh, Dr. Laura Kahn. Laura, you want to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you very much. Uh, pleasure to be here. My name is Laura Kahn. I'm a physician and research scholar at the Program on Science and Global Security at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs at Princeton University. 
I recently published a book called One Health and the Politics of Antimicrobial Resistance, and I used a One Health approach to examine the issue, looking from the perspective of medicine and public health on the one hand, veterinary medicine and agriculture on the other, as well as the environment and global issues. Um, So um, what exactly is One Health? Well, One Health is very simply the concept that human, animal, and environmental health are linked. And because they are linked, complex subjects such as antimicrobial resistance must be addressed uh, in an interdisciplinary, holistic way. So we have a real conundrum on our hands because, on the one hand, antibiotics are the foundation of modern medicine. Without antibiotics, we cannot do elective surgeries, many cancer chemotherapies, immunosuppressive therapies for patients with organ transplants, because the risk would simply be too high for the risk of infection. And so without effective antibiotics, those simply cannot be done. On the other hand, um, agriculture and food security is the foundation of civilization itself. And so we need to, in facing a warming climate, we need to make sure that we don't jeopardize a food-secure future. So how do we balance this need? Well, um, and how do we, um, how do we uh, ensure the continuation of our civilization? Well, I'm going to um, approach this from an environmental perspective. Uh, we live in a microbial world. As uh, my co-panelist just mentioned, We are surrounded by microbes. They are all around us. They are within us. They are on us. Um, We need to learn how to live better in our microbial world. So the uh, subject that I'm going to quickly talk about is one that all of us are familiar with, uh, but not commonly discussed, and that's manure. So um, let me talk a little bit about manure, since uh, that really does affect our environment and it uh, impacts the issue of antimicrobial resistance as well. There are, about, there are over 7, million, 7 billion humans on the planet, and according to UNICEF, approximately 1 billion are openly defecating. By that, I mean about uh, 1 billion people go out into the fields and squat and do their business. 600 million of them are in India. Uh, And India suffers from very high rates of uh, diarrheal diseases, childhood malnutrition, childhood stunting. They have a very high disease burden because so many of them lack adequate sanitation. Um, It is not a matter necessarily of poverty because the uh, Indian government has built latrines but they prefer to use to not use them, uh, so it's a matter of culture. So we have uh, in the 21st century people who are openly defecating. That simply should not be happening. We um, because they've got such a high disease burden, they have uh, uh, they are the number one users of antibiotics in the world, and um, antibiotics are freely available over the counter. And that should not be in an era of worsening antimicrobial resistance. Now let's turn to China. China is the number two country in the world in terms of using antibiotics. And they have uh, multiple billions of food animals. Uh, One study found that a uh, a farm with over 10,000 pigs 
had manure samples of uh, antibiotic-resistant gene concentrations of 28,000 times greater than farms uh, that don't use antibiotics. Now, these um, manure that's filled with uh, resistant microbes and resistance genes, they uh, get uh, leach into the waterways, go and contaminate the rivers and the lakes, uh, and uh, ultimately change the global resistome. Now, what do we do with all this manure? And there's a lot. What do we do with it? Well, what's typically done is that it's applied to agricultural fields, and it mixes with the soil microbes. We don't know a lot about the soil microbes, but we do know that they're out there. And interestingly enough, most of our antibiotics came from the soil microbes. So when you start mixing all of this manure filled with resistant bacteria and resistance genes with the soil, we are ultimately altering what's called the global resist dome. Our entire environment is being altered by these practices. So um, I will uh, stop there and uh, look forward to further conversations with you about how we can better live in our microbial world. Thank you. Very interesting. Um, Carrie, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah. Uh, So I'm Carrie Keefaber. I'm a veterinarian. Uh, I've done different roles uh, in my career. Currently, I, I work in policy for Elanco, and Elanco is a, a company uh, dedicated to animal health. And we make products uh, that, that help protect uh, uh, and provide and promote healthy animals that way. So my goal tonight is, is to listen, to understand uh, the different perceptions and directions, but also hopefully share a bit of what's going on uh, by Elanco in helping uh, to drive forward for solutions. Now, as we look at this, there's um, uh, science is trying to look and understand uh, the relative impact of antibiotic use in animals to the overall resistance. And they'll continue to understand that, and we have more tools by scientists looking at the, uh, the, the different uh, DNA and the processes to better understand that. However, I think all of us uh, could align that there is a risk Uh, from use of antibiotics in animals. And because that's a risk, we need to do everything possible to protect that resource when they're using animals. And part of that is why Elanco came up with our eight-point stewardship plan about a year ago. And the focus of that was two uh, uh, areas. One is responsible use. If you're using medically important antibiotics, they should only be used for disease, and they should have veterinary oversight. As well on that, the other part on is looking at new innovation. How can we discover and bring forward safe, effective new innovation that lessens the need for shared class medically important antibiotics? Now, no matter how animals are raised, no matter how good the sanitation, vaccination, nutrition, husbandry, at times are going to need antibiotics. So let's find different innovation that can help protect and lower the need to use that antibiotics. Our second big focus is on new innovation. How can we, and we dedicate it for significant investment uh, in R&D to find solutions for those diseases that's driving shared class antibiotic use for therapy. That's mastitis in cows, respiratory disease in cattle, enteric disease in, in poultry. 
So this morning, and uh, I won't go into a lot of detail because if you go on online, you can find our report. And we committed a year to come back and report our progress. So we have uh, some some advances. Uh, we've increased invest, uh, investment in in um, uh, looking at vaccines. We redid our vaccine innovation center. We've uh, looked and screened molecules, and it have eight new molecules that are leading even to the development stage of moving to the product registration. We also have over 20 new products that are still doing the final uh, uh, checks to see if it's a candidate that can enter into development. We've increased our uh, uh, investments in bacteriophages. We've uh, increased our investment in enzymes. We've come out and had uh, products approved, a protein that is immunomodulator. We've uh, had approval of two new animal-only antibiotics for some diseases that cause shared class antibiotic use in the U.S. So we're moving forward to make sure that if these medically important antibiotics are used, it's for therapy and only with veterinary oversight. So as we move forward, we want to continue to find solutions and make sure we're doing and progressing to protect these valuable assets. We're already using 1.6 times our resources to uh, grow the food we need now. So how do we make sure that 20% of animal protein that's lost by death and disease is reduced? So I'm going to look forward to the discussion and input tonight, but I think as we look forward, as we focus on animal use, how can we make sure they're being used responsibly? Are we using these medically important for therapy and not for growth promotion? Is there a veterinary involved in decision? If it's used for the right product at the right time, at the right dose, and the right withdrawal, so there is no residue that it has been effectively eliminated by the time that animal goes to harvest. And then last, let's put our stewardship in there. Not only how we use them right, but make sure we're looking at other options to decrease the need. So if we have a responsibility, we create new innovation that lessens the needs, brings safe and effective tools to help producers globally and veterinarians to solve the problem. And the third, as you say, how do we look at this globally? Uh, we have to look at the big picture, how microbes move globally, and also how it integrates uh, with their overall picture. Everything's interrelated. Mm. Health of animals, health of environment, and health of people. Thank you, Kerry. Uh, Stefan, you want to introduce yourself, please? Thank you. Hello. I'm happy to be speak uh, to you in this important topic of preserving effectiveness on antibiotics. I hope that you remain happy after what I am going to say to you. Yeah. <laughs> Stefan, where are you from? Uh, I am from Chile. I am, uh, uh, I've been working with activism during the last 20 years for just the making awareness of what we are eating or what we are buying. So uh, uh, for us, this uh, important issue requires reducing antibiotics in, in human and in food food animal production. And I would like to say that I speak here not just for the Chilean consumer, but also for other Latin American consumers' organizations. My organization have, have been working since uh, 2005 to research products and services and right consumers' awareness in Chile. We are very concerned that it's a very hard, high use of antibiotics in the production of poultry and salmon, both of which are exported as well as consumed within Chile. 
In poultry production, according to research of Chilean University, colistin, who is forbidden everywhere, is the main antibiotic used in pork and poultry production uh, in terms of uh, prophylactically to prevent disease. In Chile, this drug has the approval of the agricultural office. Amazing. We are concerned as public health officials are all over the world about the recent data showing resistance to colistin in both food and animals and in sick people. Colistin is an antibiotic doctor used when everything else fails. If resistance develops to this antibiotic too, in some situations doctors will be left with nothing to treat a sick patient. Antibiotic use in salmon production, which is very big industry in our country, in Chile, is also extremely high, much higher than in other countries. In Chile, in 2013, more than 500,000 kilograms of antibiotics were used in salmon production. 500,000. Whereas in Norway, which is produced almost 50% more salmon, the industry used only 972 kilograms and antibiotics. This is shocking difference. The Chilean industry used more than 900 times more antibiotics per kilogram of salmon as Norway does. 900 times. Amazing figure. Because the Norwegian companies operate also in Chile. Why don't they use the same standards and practices? Because our concerns this, my, in my organization is participating in the Consumers International campaign called Antibiotic of the Menu to persuade global fast fast food chains, McDonald's, Subway, and KFC to eliminate antibiotics or that le at least antibiotics important in human medicine from the food they serve in their restaurant. Consumer awareness is the problem in rising globally. In March of this year, 90 consumers organizations joined this campaign. A new report of US fast food chains called Chain Reaction 2 is coming out next week. I understand that in North America, McDonald's has completely eliminated all medically import antibiotics in the production of the, of the chicken it serves in its restaurants, 100%. Why, I have to ask, have they, have they not done this in South America? This is a double standard. In their suppliers can do this in the USA, one would think they could explain to de their suppliers in Chile how they raise chicken without medically important antibiotics. Overuse of antibiotics is a global problem. Superbugs do not, uh, do not know national borders. When antibiotic resistance emerges in one place, it travels rapidly around the world. So why actions in USA or Norway is vitally important. We also need action in Chile and everywhere else food animals are raised. 
antibiotic use must be limited to the curing sickness in animals just and in humans, not use it to promote growth or prevent disease in factory farming conditions. We hope the nations of the world will take action on this serious problem next week. Thank you. Uh, it's interesting to point out that um, we, uh, Intelligence Squared inv invited McDonald's, Panera, Wendy's, Walmart, Ch Chipotle, and Tyson's Food to come tonight to speak, and they declined um, to give us an answer. And it's interesting that you're, you're talking about the, the fast food. Uh, let me begin our discussion by saying, um, you know, let's, let's focus on the longer, bigger picture than the immediate, and let's talk about why Norway is so successful with using less, and uh, what did they... What did they do right? I'm going to ask you first. What did they do right that no one uh, – why? Is it persuasive? Is it the public opinion? What is the leverage that a country can use or that people in a country can use to change the habits of how – Well, I think, I'm not exactly, but uh, I would think that it's a public policy who is uh, <coughs> addressing all the time what the problem with the, with the antibiotic are. The public policy in Norway is very different than public policy yeah. that we have in Chile. We have yeah. lack of Tim? public policy. Well, I think number one is I mean, Norwegians are perhaps the best educated people in the world, and I think that's the, the, the lesson here that you know the level of everybody. It's not just at the top. It's it, they have, and that, that generally for the Scandinavian countries, they they can educate their population better to understand things about uh, food health and dangers. Uh, they're rich, and they have a very uh, well-funded, central-funded uh, health system, which doesn't, uh, like the American system, reward people for acts or giving out prescriptions. It actually uh, controls these things. So it's a combination of that uh, highly educated population with a, with a central um, health system and agricultural system that oversees it that it's all joined up in those countries. It's small enough, it's rich enough to join it up. And I think you can't just do one on its own. And I think it's, uh, it's so, uh, you know, it's, it is, it's the human antibiotics, it's the agricultural, yeah. it's, it's the fact that also they're prepared to pay more for their food. We haven't really addressed that, but, uh, you know, what we're seeing here is the antibiotics have gone up as food has, uh, prices have come down. Everyone here is, is quite happy to have a $1 chicken and doesn't mind that, you know, 60% of them are infected with uh, uh, antibiotic-resistant uh, microbes uh, because that's much cheaper than it was. Whereas in those Scandinavian countries, they don't want cheap, infected, antibiotic food. They kept their standards uh, higher. So it, 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 it's complex, but uh, yeah. it's so, very social. Lauren, did you want to say something? Yeah, just from an environmental perspective, so looking at this globally, um, we are fishing our oceans dry. I mean, a lot of Cape Cod has no more cod. Mm. Uh, so we need to figure out how, I mean, fish protein is a very healthy protein. So how do we sustainably provide ourselves with fish protein? Well, the alternative to wild-caught fish is aquaculture. And, but fish didn't evolve to live or grow in these, you know, compacted environments of, you know, thousands of fish living in these enclosed pens. 
and they're swimming in their wastes, you know, thousands of fish swimming in, our wa- in their wastes. So um, in order to be successful at aquaculture uh, without relying on a lot of antibiotics, you're going to have to have a really good filtration system to filter out all those wastes as the fish uh, eliminate. And I would imagine that that's going to be expensive. So, but, you know, it's a trade-off. So people are going to have to be willing to pay for more expensive fish if they want healthy fish and still have fish left in the ocean. So, you know, we have to start talking about these things. Which, which, uh, which meat industries have the highest concentration of, of use of antibiotics? Uh, the pork. Pork. pork industry. Pork followed by poultry, you know. But it, yeah, and, and in the fishing industry, it's, I mean, it, half, half of the prawns in the world come from uh, Thailand and Vietnam, and I think they're heavily um, antibiotic-treated, those farms. So. Yeah. And it's, particularly in the developed world, probably poultry is making the most advancing and in, in changing and being an adapt practices to reduce the, the use. How do you, and how do you stop doctors? Are doctors becoming more aware of the antibiotics they're prescribing? Is oh, this certainly. That, How could they not? Well, I mean, you know, if your patient's not responding to an antibiotic, uh, you're certainly going to be aware of that. But, but, but more patients, are they going to their doctors knowing that if they have a cold, they shouldn't be getting? No, I don't think that's getting That's not happening. No. no. They just want a stronger antibiotic. <laughs> not like that rubbish one you gave me last time that didn't work. You know, I want the latest one. If not, I'm going to another doctor. That's the, that's the pressure these these guys are under, and uh, that, that's you know. And in many countries in the world, uh, most of the Latin American countries in Spain, you can get over the counter. In India, you get over the counter antibiotics. People just say, you ask your next door neighbor, oh, what did you take when you got ill? Oh, I just took that one. Oh, great, I'll take that. So you know, it's it's treated as something that has no side effects at all, and I think that's the biggest worry here. And that and cheap food has a side effect, as do antibiotics. And I think that's the the message that the few countries in the world that have managed to sort it out have managed to convince their population that you don't have to have uh, steak every day to, to, to be healthy. Um, and, you know, maybe it's interesting as these countries like China are suddenly massively increasing their protein intakes, um, you know, they're getting sicker, they're getting obesity, they're getting diabetes. Stefan, do you think that if we give people a way of knowing what antibiotics are in the meat they eat, they might avoid some of those foods? It's a big question. I mean, you know, I, I can see, you know, I, I, we hear about technologies with computers on a chip and all kinds of things where you could just take it and stick it on a piece of fish yeah. and find out what kind of antibiotics before you buy it. And say, so this antibiotic, you know, <clears throat> by eating this, I'm killing other humans yeah. because someone else is going to get uh, re- resistant disease and have no, tr- no antibiotic left. I think that could be a yeah, and and I think interesting message. People Little sticker, all, yeah, skull and crossbone sticker. But I'm not sure the supermarkets are going to want to put it on. Yeah, yeah. But some supermarkets <laughs> yeah. might, you know, because there's, you know, a lot of organic food, organic eating is, is becoming very popular. Well, now. They say free, free from. Yes. Well, I'm going to play devil's advocate here, and uh, you know, in Africa, uh, a lot of people rely on wild animals or bush meat. And if they see, and there was an article I read in the New York Times where, you know, there's a dead animal lying there on the ground, and uh, they don't think that that animal might have Ebola. They think it's going to be dinner. 
So now we have to figure out, well, which disease is worse? You know, some of these nasty viral diseases that have been emerging from wildlife or antibiotic-resistant meat that's coming from industrial agriculture. So, you know, people are going to want protein. They're going to want meat. We need to recognize that reality. So we either make the meat too expensive for them to buy or they uh, purchase uh, or they go out and hunt uh, wild animals, and there aren't that many wild animals left to eat. So what are the alternatives? I mean, uh, there's some efforts to develop uh, meat in test tubes. Um, that's one possibility that technology's in its infancy, but that would certainly help to eliminate this whole uh, conundrum of which protein to eat. Uh, two billion people, according to the FAO, eat insects. Maggots, other insects are a great source of protein. You have to overcome the ick factor. But, um, you know, that might be a very um, sustainable way to provide 7-plus billion people, estimated to go up to 9 or 10 billion people. Maybe we should start looking more at insects as a potential source of protein that uh, would not jeopardize antibiotics and would decrease the risk of emerging diseases. So what putting that out there. Yes. yes. No, just say that... Um, most Latin American countries have uh, been successful in, in uh, fighting hun hunger, Brazil, for example. But no one, no country has been successful in, in, uh, in raise awareness about food quality. The food supplies is, is now available for the most, but food quality... You know, this remind what the discussion during the 60s about uh, pesticide. Uh, it's the same discussion. Now we have, as Tim say, one dollar chicken. But no one knows what, what they are eating. Yeah, I, I guess, I yeah, that is the central question. You want to know what you're eating. Yep. Yeah. You want to be safe that you know what's in your food. Well, yeah. some people are, and the more educated the country, the more people are concerned about that. So that's why I keep coming back to this idea that, um, you know, and it, it doesn't have to be just, yep. you know, the traditional education, but it could just be more obvious labeling and uh, more, uh, you know, at, at the end product, differentiating between these rather than just everybody on the same bandwagon of, you know, we've got to subsidize the the grain, the corn, the, everything, the whole industries that go into making the cheap food because that's the political will. Well, well the, the, uh, the FDA is going to have a regulation that goes into effect next uh, January 1st that will uh, prevent uh, the, you, you're talking about the, the carry the voluntary yep. standards that you have now. That will basically codify, right? Yeah. The same standards. And, and I agree with Laura. I think there's an opportunity. Maybe I'm too much of an optimist. Maybe we can do both. Maybe we can meet the, the growing demand for protein and have people have a balanced diet of protein and vegetables and fruit and, and also be able to protect resources and go forward. And as you state, uh, in the U.S., uh, there is uh, the FDA issued a guidance that will be fully in effect come January 1st that uh, medically important antibiotics can only be used for therapy uh, under the oversight of a veterinarian. But, uh, but just so. to, I mean, in Europe, that happened 10 years ago. Yep. And what happened to antibiotic sales generally went up. Yep. So and I think clever food manufacturers and mass, you know, the, 
these farmers will find ways around it if they've got deadlines to meet and they've got to get those chickens and, and pigs to be uh, as many as, as you know yeah. as productive as possible. So those those general guidances don't work and uh, people cheat and that's why across Europe you see these enormous variations. Yeah, and uh, and again, maybe I'm a little more optimistic. Uh, and and again, I think what we saw in Europe, the transition from antibiotics for growth promotion led to more use for therapeutic use. When you use a therapy, it's higher dose, higher amounts. So when you look at the total pounds of use went up, but then it's come down and gotten more stabilized. And I think also we have to me is which antibiotics are used. I mean, you know, when we look at the U.S., uh, you know, with the two most critical antibiotics or less than 1% of what's used in, in uh, animal agriculture. So while we focus going forward, I think it's important that we put someone uh, that's a medical trained professional in charge of doing a veterinarian. You would think that the, you know, the, the fast food or the, the food processors, the, 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 the restaurants would have the leverage in this. You mentioned McDonald's is not going to be serving antibiotic chicken anymore. What about all the other fish people and the other restaurants saying, you know, we're, in, we're all in this, uh, in agreement on this? And they, that would seem to me to have great buying power, leverage that way. Yeah, and, and McDonald's global vision on responsible antibiotic use is a great document. And it talks about making sure we're doing the right thing by the animal and by having uh, the right steps in place to move forward in continuous progress. How do you collect data and spread information and make the best decisions? So... As we, we look forward, we have to make sure, you know, we, we talk about uh, uh, antibiotic-free, but essentially I think you're talking about raised without antibiotics mm -hmm. uh, because of withdrawal times impacting residue is not uh, the concern with antibiotic use in animals. But sometimes the focus of raising animals with antibiotics may impact resistance higher. Now, that seems counter-contrarian, but if we don't use antibiotics appropriately early or we don't use animal-only antibiotics, then we have to come back and treat animals that become sick with a higher, more concentrated, more valuable antibiotic at the end. So we have to look at the holistic picture of how, and our goal is to decrease resistance well, of concern to people. You could take those animals out of the food chain and not treat them. That could be the other alternative. Now, I think as people look and want to ensure that animals are treated humanely, their option is, is euthanasia of any animal that gets sick or whole barns of animals. Well, you're going to that kill an them option. anyhow for food. Or, I mean, I quite understand that. Euthanasia but. for an animal is not quite as the humane. Yes. <laughs> um, what about if you want to be a vegan, uh, Laura? If you want to go vegan, can you avoid antibiotics? Well, I mean, the antibiotics are used in uh, plant agriculture as well, not as uh, high a concentration, and it's certainly not been as politically uh, explosive an issue as in animal agriculture. Um, so... I mean, nobody wants to eat uh, pest-infested plants, so, um, you know, uh, <laughs> it's going to be hard. Uh, and I guess if you uh, are willing to spend more for the organic, uh, organically grown fruits and vegetables, uh, it will be hard to avoid pesticides and other types of chemicals. Well, I've got about five minutes before we go to questions from the audience, so I want to bring this full circle and talk about the uh, the UN meeting coming up, um, and what um, you might all see as something that you would like to see. What would be a successful outcome from the UN meeting? Let me start with this. This end will work our way down. Tim. 
Have you thought uh, about? Well, you're not hopeful. Huh. Well, I, I'm skeptical about these these rules because people get rounded, and then the end of the day, they want to make a buck. And so, you know, I'm very skeptical that rule. I mean, but I think at least it's a start. So, uh, having a, a moratorium and saying, okay, you know, around the world, let's let's agree to start at this point to say we're not going to use antibiotics to uh, increase the speed of growth of animals. Okay, mm -hmm. that would be a that would be a start, and that would put pressure. And then, once you've got that, you you then go to the, the fast food multinationals and say, okay, you know, you're not going to endorse or buy from people who use them in that way. At least, it's moving in that direction. Laura, uh, there is <clears throat> three things that I would like to come out of the UN meeting. One, uh, I would like them to uh, develop targets for reduction of. Uh, use of manure on agricultural fields. I would like uh, all countries, as I said, no human in the 21st century should be openly defecating. I would like to see much better sanitation implemented around the world. Two, we absolutely must harmonize the surveillance of uh, these resistant microbes. We didn't get a chance to talk about the genomics, the genomes of these microbes, um, but uh, what we've been doing is doing surveillance of just the resistance genes, and that really doesn't tell you where these microbes are coming from. And I like to think of it this way. We look at these uh, resistance genes in the microbes the same way as if we would look at people who have red hair. We try put a whole bunch of people with red hair together in a room trying to figure out how they're all related to each other by their hair color. You simply cannot do it. And before 2008, it was uh, financially too expensive to sequence the genomes of some of these uh, microbes, but now the cost has really dropped, and hospitals are now starting to use uh, genomics to do hospital surveillance. So I would really like to see a worldwide implementation of genomic surveillance to be able to really understand the epidemiology of where these resistant microbes are coming from. And last but not least, we also didn't talk about uh, bacteriophages. Um, bacteriophages are the most prevalent bioform on the planet. They are. What, what are they? Tell people what oh, they sorry. are. Oh, yeah. sorry. Uh, bacteriophages are tiny little viruses that are the most prevalent bioform on the planet. And a science fiction writer couldn't have come up with a more bizarre-looking entity. It's got a little... Uh, a capsule and a landing feature, and it lands on the like the lunar la lunar lander on the moon. It looks just like that. It's really quite amazing. And they inject their genetic material into the bacteria, hijack the cell of the bacteria, and then explode it. I mean, it's brilliant. So they've uh, been around forever, as long as yep. they've been around for as long as bacteria have been around, and they've been in this constant <coughs> battle, if you will you know, between uh, survival and killing each other. <coughs> and why don't we work with nature and harness them to our advantage? You know, just having all of our armamentarium just be on antibiotics is really short-sighted because in the end, the bacteria can always evolve much faster than we can develop new antibiotics. So here's all these bacteriophages just waiting out in the environment everywhere, they're even in us, uh, why don't we harness them? Our technology with them is over a century old. We should be uh, investing much more in research and development for genomics. I see a tremendous industry that could be developed if we actually had the political will 
to invest in this potential, yeah, potentially should, powerful therapy. You should mention there's no money uh, in anyone developing normal antibiotics now. That's true. There haven't been any for uh, that's, ten, ten years. Nothing true. for ten years or yeah. so. Yeah. All right. Uh, Karen, what yeah, would you like to I, say? I'm going to agree with the two uh, colleagues here. You know, one, we need these medically important antibiotics. We do not need them for growth promotion. I think that's a given. Do we and, need any of them? Do we need any antibiotics? Why, why just stop Well, that? I think they're going to have disease of animals, and they're going to need to be treated. No, but why use any antibiotics for growth rather than just? Well, I, I think as we look at that and trying to have uh, sometimes using those class of antibiotics not medically important impacts and reduces the need for shared class antibiotics. So what's our goal here? Our goal is to reduce resistance. What drives resistance is using those medically important antibiotics. So let's find ways that we have to reduce the use of that need. The other is the optimism that I'll come back. Uh, We've been uh, looking at bacteriophages for several years. We just renewed a commitment with a bacteriophage company to go deeper for understanding and how that fits. Uh, Part of my career I spent in R&D, taking products from an idea uh, to global registrations. A lot of them fail. A lot of great ideas like great molecules, and you want to move them forward. What I'm excited about is those potentials out there that we could bring forward. So the other goal would be is how do we help bring forward innovation and have it safe and effective and get global acceptance quicker and faster? And the last one, like you talked about surveillance, but surveillance on antibiotic resistance. I think there's some standardizations that we could establish of how are we going to monitor resistance. If you look in the U.S. and the CDC, the 18 bacteria they listed for most concern for resistance, two of them are the only ones directly related to animal use. We need to focus on those and monitor the resistance impact of those two and make that be our focus, and then have a global surveillance program on antibiotic resistance to help guide and direct us and help us make better decisions. Stefan? So I would like to say to global leaders that we need a stronger consumer protection. We can't have a, for example, if we have now to say, government's official, why we have cholesterol is allowed in Chile and other countries? Because we are very weak consumer protection. Because the, polit- the, the, the political class has all the time think in economical growth. I'm not thinking in, in, in terms of consumer protection and sustainability. So economical growth is is quite a, a, a challenge when you have to fight hunger. But economical growth is not enough when you have to uh, uh, to take care of the of the people and of the health and food quality. So stronger consumer protection m- can be a st- step forward. Okay. Um, I'm, if anybody, uh, I know that no one wants to ask the first question. Why are you doing that? Uh, I want to uh, talk to uh, uh, Keiji Fukuda, who's in the audience from the World Health Organization. If you have anything that you would, I will get you a microphone too. Um, do you have anything that you would expect the UN, that you would hope? Do you know what the UN is going to talk about next week? Uh, no, they haven't spoken yet. <laughs> but I do have my hopes, like everybody else. You know, I, I think. uh, One way to look at this meeting is that um, 
this is really a unique point in the entire uh, discussion about antimicrobial resistance. I mean, we've had decades of discussion at a kind of scientific medical level in which the the technical issues and the dangers have been discussed. And, you know, there's been lots of attempts to deal with it at that level, so lots of guidelines, how we use uh, antibiotics and so on. In the last few years, we've had a, um, a complete change in the discussion. And I think the, the, the meeting next week can be seen in that light. You know, basically we are now hearing people talk about antimicrobial resistance that would never have even known that it existed a few years ago. So, you know, about a week ago we had the G20, which is focused on economic growth in the world, say we have an issue here which in fact threatens economic growth. We uh, know that the World Bank will be coming out with a report which follows on, on the heels of a report from the UK by Jim O'Neill, again looking at some of the economic consequences. We've had projections about the number of people that will die um, uh, you know, when we get towards 2050 if things aren't done. And then there's been, I think, much broader recognition that, uh, in fact, this is an agricultural issue, this is a human health issue. And um, when you look at the kinds of money, the, the, the economic impact, which is really being discussed, it's really be beginning to be seen as um, an issue which, like climate change or HIV, actually begins to threaten the development of countries. And I think that that's the reason why we're having a meeting where heads of states are getting together. They wouldn't get together to discuss a health issue. They simply wouldn't. But if you have an issue which is seen as something which is really a social threat, a societal threat, that's when you get heads of states to, together. And so what I hope to see is that we will see um, a level of commitment from these leaders and recognition that, in fact, we have a problem on that magnitude, that we see the recognition of some of the things which are needed. For example, you simply need money. You need resources if you're going to deal with a big issue. And I think the third critical ingredient that I hope to see them address is that um, if you have an issue this large, you can't have it be dealt with as a, as a health issue or a science issue. It really has to be an issue which is um, bringing in a large number of different sectors. This is very hard to do. You don't typically get all these groups which don't normally work together to work together. But um, it's at the heads of state level where you can begin to move it in that direction. And I think some, these are some of the things which I, I hope they address, because if they do that, then it places the meeting at being one stage in taking this um, attempt to address this issue to a much higher mm -hmm. level, and it really becomes the beginning of what I think is a much more realistic approach to uh, uh, dealing with this. So oh, that's what we'll I have hope. to see. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for those comments. It is a big issue now. Uh, who has the first question? Yes, over here. Thank you very much. Tyler Smith with Earth Justice. Uh, my question's for the entire panel. Throughout uh, the comments so far this evening, we've spoken about growth promotion, the use of antibiotics for growth promotion in animals as the uh, primary, maybe the only problem with antibiotic use in food animal production. Uh, I'm also interested in the panel's thoughts on the use of antibiotics for routine disease prevention, often to compensate for crowded and unsanitary conditions where the animals are produced. 
It often entails the uh, same low-dose, long-duration use as growth promotion, and so it often has the same impact on antibiotic resistance as growth promotion. And so uh, following up on Dr. Spector's comment uh, about how the ban on antimicrobial growth promoters in the EU uh, over a decade ago was not by itself adequate, uh, and some countries found that because of continued use, often for routine disease prevention, additional measures were needed. You have countries like Denmark, which have uh, introduced the Red Card Initiative, where they've compared farms to the antibiotic use of their neighbor, farms antibiotic use to that of their neighbors, and then taken action when farms have uh, uh, essentially shown that they are using antibiotics excessively because unlike their neighbors who face similar disease threats, uh, they've used antibiotics much more extensively. And I'm wondering what the panel thinks about that initiative and what the panel thinks about uh, the possibility of implementing that in the U.S., and if not that, how else should routine disease prevention be addressed since uh, the voluntary approach by FDA that was mentioned does not cover it? Tim, you want to? Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I think uh, you've hit the nail on the head, and that's what many observers believe that the European, I mean, it, what's happened is after that ban, uh, the, the difference between the countries grew much wider. So you can see on any of the charts that uh, there were big differences, you know, even countries right next to each other like Belgium and Netherlands. And it was because of regional people groups cheating. But basically, depending on how their veterinarians were controlled or not, they would just get someone to sign a piece of paper to say, oh, yes, one out of this 500 uh, uh, pigs is infected, so we're giving everyone uh, antibiotic treatment because they're so close together they'll all give it to other. So there was a general belief that they were uh, cheating the system, as you, as you said. And uh, there have been initi useful initiatives in some countries to limit that, and that's why you've got this discrepancy in Europe between the good and the bad guys that's getting bigger. So I, I think it, if you can enforce it, it works. But each country, and, it, and probably in the U.S., each state is going to have a different um, view on that. But I, I, I think uh, when it does work uh, and there's general agreement, um, I think that's a very uh, it's a useful way forward. So I, I think it's a great question uh, as you look, uh, look forward. I think uh, as we look at this, I, I think one thing I had to make, you said voluntary. Once these changes are made, it won't be voluntary compliance. The process to make the change was voluntary by uh, the, the sponsors to change, and all of them agreed, and those labels would change. And if the feed mill, if the veterinary, and if the producer uh, does not follow those rules, uh, that's an adulterated product, and, and that's breaking the law. Now, we still have to be concerned that people are complying with those rules because we have to make sure the veterinarian upholds his responsibility by the veterinary practice, we have to make sure the paperwork is checked and go forward. This other part about that is, is uh, I, you know, the, that routine uh, prevention care has to be evaluated. So we, we what will do you think? I'm sorry, I just wanted to follow up because I think that was a really, um, it really helps to have Alonco's comments on that. Uh, I'm wondering, given that we know there are certain characteristics of industrial animal production, the stocking density, how closely these animals are kept to each other, how closely they're kept to their waste, um, given that there's already quite a bit of literature on that, and given that we know that routine disease prevention 
uh, is very similar. Uh, antibiotic use for routine disease prevention is very similar to use for growth promotion. I agree with you absolutely. It needs to be evaluated. Can, aren't we at a stage where we could take action at this point? And the uh, approach put forward by FDA, whether or not, and it, it won't be voluntary after the label changes are made, certainly by January 1st, uh, it, but it also doesn't address routine disease prevention. Aren't we at a point where we can take action, given what we know, and what specifically might that action be? So as we, as we look forward, and, and um, you know, last week was with a group of swine veterinarians focused on how do I comply with these rules and how do I decrease the needs. So in those discussions, people are focused on adding the, the other tools. I think a value would be is a program we're starting on looking at data and try to analyze what are the practices, what are the shared material that we can learn together where we are reducing the pressure. I think as we, you know, we talked about consumers want to know more about their, how their food is raised and producers are stepping up and sharing that. So in that purpose of transparency, there's an opportunity to share. What diagnostics are you using to base this process on? How are you making sure that this product was used at the right time, at the right dose, and for the right use, and withdrawal at the right time? So there's some real opportunity for transparency, and there's some real opportunity for data analysis to share the best practices, and then there's some real opportunity. It doesn't, the solution may not be a pill, it may not be injective, it may just be uh, improved management and sharing that data uh, across uh, different professionals. Question here. Yes, ma'am. Hi. Um, thank you for the interesting and lively discussion. Um, my name is Tiffany, and I work for WaterAid, which is an organization that tackles water sanitation and hygiene issues in developing countries. I want to talk a little bit about infectious disease prevention. Um, studies show that 40% of healthcare facilities in low- and middle-income countries don't have running water. Can we really effectively combat antimicrobial resistance, especially in some of the areas that Dr. Kahn was speaking about, if we can't keep hospitals clean? Absolutely. That's a, thank you for saying that. I mean, antibiotics have been used in many developing countries as a substitute for sanitation and hygiene. So, I mean, that's a, a perfect example of it. I mean, until you are provided with clean water... Uh, and uh, removal of waste. I mean, it's it's just going to be a vicious cycle. Next question. Next question. Well, here, there. Uh, good night. <clears throat> My name is Mariana Darvin. I work at the Permanent Mission of Brazil to the UN, so I've been uh, seeing a little bit of the meetings. However, I will not speaking on behalf of my government <laughs> tonight. Um, so thank you for the presentation. It was very interesting. Uh, what I've been remarking is that we have not uh, talked a lot about um, a lot of people who still don't have access to a lot of antibiotics in our world today. And uh, if we are going to invent a new kind of antibiotic, who is going to pay for this antibiotic? And how uh, will we delinkage the price invested in uh, this research and development to the price of the final product. Because today we still have a lot of people who don't have access and who are dying for it. And uh, we are talking about a multi-sectoral problem, uh, pharmaceutical industry, health, agriculture, education, etc. How uh, can we address this? Because we are saying that uh, the bacteria don't have any borders. However, I 
been only hearing about the United States, the United Kingdom, etc. So uh, I also see this uh, as a kind of climate change uh, issue that the North has used too much. So now everybody has to stop. However, not everybody's developed yet. So how do we address this problem in a global way? Thank you. I will, I'll jump in because I do believe things start at the ground roots or start locally. And I think a lot of what we're talking about is politics. We're talking about money. We're talking about the cost of living. We're talking about food. These are all decisions that are you know, politically made in all different countries. If you believe uh, that, you know, two water resources are not being used the right way or uh, you don't want antibiotics in your food or that you want regulations, these are all political decisions that are made by countries. And we're having an election this year. Um, and I don't mean just the presidential. On the presidential election, uh, level, because most of the decisions about the future of the country are made locally and by local politicians. For example, we talk about education systems and whatever, and we talk about why federal government isn't doing this and that. Ninety percent of the money for education system comes from your local government, you know, either your state or your school board or something like that. You pay for that locally. So if, uh, you know, they're going to be in in the U.S., are going to be hundreds of people running for Congress and Senate, and, and if you feel strongly, let them know what your feelings are about where you stand on these issues, and it's certainly true internationally. Um, if you, I think that's where the power, you know, lies in, in influencing the future of what of where these issues go. Um, it we we like to think that it's up to the other person to take on that burden, but it's all up. We're all really in this together, and if you really want to influence. Um, the future, you need to work locally, um, and I can't think of any easier way to do it than to, to vote or work politically locally. Um, if I could make a remark, um, I'm uh, from. I work for Consumer Reports, and uh, I, I've been. Uh, that there have been quite a few statements about that seem to imply that there's a choice between cheap food and using antibiotics. Uh, that if we're going to eliminate antibiotics, we can't have cheap food anymore. And I really believe that's not the case. The facts are showing differently. Um, McDonald's has gone to 100% no antibiotics chicken, and they have not raised the price of their chicken McNuggets. Um, the, 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 we have Purdue, uh, which is 50% um, uh, no... Um, antibiotics at all, 95% no medically important antibiotics, they're obviously still a competitive company in the, in the marketplace uh, in, and in retail. Um, in the salmon industry, the Norwegian salmon industry produces more salmon than the Chilean industry. They are a huge salmon exporter, uh, and they have done this with, with a tiny fraction of the antibiotic use. So, so why... You know, why is this? You know, apparently there are some producers who have figured out how to do it. And it's the kind of things that the gentleman from Malenko has been talking about, vaccines, um, sanitation practices. But a lot of those are things that, that a company can't sell. So I, I, I'm kind of, I guess I'm putting this question to Alanco. Can, can you... Um, 
you know, how do we disseminate these good techniques uh, so that so that you can so that companies, you know, in in a lot of parts of the world can use them and produce the same amount of food just as cheaply without the antibiotics. And can you make a uh, can you have make a have a good business plan for yourself selling those kinds of techniques instead of antibiotics? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question. And and again, like I said, I may share the optimism that we can have affordable food. It may not be cheap, but affordable food that have people access to a balanced diet and still do the right thing. You know, as Elanco, we've been bold and stepped out how we're moving ahead on antibiotic stewardship but because we see our future is different and, and more innovation than just purely antibiotics as our business manner. We do commit, though, there is antibiotics at the time they're needed. And if we need them on antibiotics, we need to treat them, but we have to make sure they're doing right. But as we move forward, we see there's other innovation, there's vaccines, there's all those that can help the producer raise product just as, as effectively. Also, we committed to data management and data uh, looking and helping producers. We have teams of technical people that are PhD nutritionists, PhD meat scientists, food safety, that work with producers to share. Are we doing good enough? No. We need to do more. We need to continue to help share data and help people understand how they can do better and share these mechanisms. But we all win when we have thriving animals, when we have healthy animals, and we don't have to use these shared class antibiotics. So we're all going to win together or lose together, so how can we create a model that we're able to move forward? Does that make sense? Yes. All right, that's a good place. Optimistic note to end on. I want to thank all of our panelists the world, and also the World Health Organization, the Welcome Trust, Intelligence Squared in London, and thank you all for coming down this evening and taking part in our panel discussion. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.